Romans. Did you not remember? Just when I ask a question like that, you just don't think you're supposed to answer, or you're afraid to answer wrong. Come on. And uh, we won't finish Romans today. We won't finish Romans for a while. I'm going to share some things with you that I, I believe will bless you today. They'll teach you today. They'll equip you today. I wanted to recognize uh, Pastor Brian Hutchinson, who's here with his family. There's Becky and Brooke and Miles over there. Can you wave? <laughs> Pastors over in Quincy. And the name of your church. What? Angry what? <laughs> Anger's Chapel? Anger's Chapel. Acres Chapel. Huh? What'd you say, Sonny? <laughs> Brian's a great guy. Uh, we worked uh, closely for a number of years over at Summer Scream. Uh, he is just one of the most dynamic, I'm energetic, talented. Um, he certainly made my job easy, made, uh, made me look good whether he meant to or not. He just he made one of the hardest working guys it was ever my pleasure to work with at Summer Screams. Huge blessing to me and to uh, uh, our kids, your kids, to the church. You're a blessing, man. So is your family. Good to have you with us today. All right. Uh, enough of that. Let's get into uh, Romans. We started last week... Uh, with uh, kind of an introduction, we did, uh, not last week, last week we had a fantastic testimony from the Heinens, and I appreciate that, heard some great feedback on that. If you weren't here for that, I strongly encourage you to get the CD, because there was some stuff in there that I, uh, that I know will challenge you and encourage you. Uh, but that, uh, two weeks ago then, we started Romans, we did a review to catch us up to, uh, to, to this point, we are working through the Bible uh, we are in year three or four. We are up there a ways. Well along in our 18-month series through the Bible, cover to cover. And uh, once we finished the, the, the Gospels and Acts, we paused and did it. Of course, we had uh, Resurrection Sunday in there and to kind of catch us up. And now we're moving into the section of the Bible known as the epistles, the letters written by the leaders of the early church that really help us to get a handle on how Christian doctrine applies to our lives today. And so to introduce that new section, we did a review of Genesis up through Acts, and then we introduced Romans. And, and uh, after his introductory remarks, uh, concluding, we'll read these in uh, chapter 1. Read this again in verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then he dives right in. We are not going to spend, as I said, a lot of time on the second half of chapter 1 because I did a whole message on that a few Wednesdays ago. You can ask Kay exactly when it was. Uh, sorry to... I don't know where she is, uh, but she can, uh, she can find it for you easily enough, and I recommend you get it. But very briefly, for the sake of those who weren't here, uh, this is a super important chapter. The rest of chapter 1 of Romans is something you need to read a number of times, become very, very familiar with it, because what Paul is doing is describing not just the world he lives in, but the world that we live in. All right? This is, uh, he's talking about the corruption of mankind, not just the theological truth of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, but its cumulative effects on the human race and where it has brought us, 
okay? And uh, again, he's not writing this prophetically. He's writing about how people were back then. And we've just simply continued that trend downward morally, uh, winding up at the end of that chapter where he lists all of these things that God uh, considers uh, and that he, and, and Paul's case is that people know deep down inside that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Says this, might as well, I think I only gave you verse 32, but we'll just, uh, we'll just start in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. They don't only do the things that they know deep down inside are wrong, but they endorse, they approve, they celebrate those who practice them. This is where we're at. We are a society that calls evil good and good evil, right? Who are the big bad guys? Uh, you know, you, you, the most hated people, the most hateful people, according to this very secular society, are who? These narrow-minded, judgmental, hateful Christians, right? Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's where we are. Keep that in mind. You can highlight or underline verse 32 because we're going to circle around back to it because then in chapter 2, he goes after the Jews who are judging others according to the law. And it's very, very important to read this chapter in context because if you don't, you will feel condemned, you will also panic because it sounds very much like salvation by works. You've got to keep reading because he is talking about how we are not, not doing this, not doing that. God's going to render to every man according to his works. But the point he's making is this. In chapter 2, let's skip down to verse 12. It says, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many who have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else uh, excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, his point is, once again, and we'll develop this here, we're going to spend a couple minutes, that the law is not some arbitrary set of rules that God invented just so he would have something by which he could judge mankind. These are eternal truths that we are created with the capacity to know. Everybody has a conscience. Uh, our conscience is there to judge good and evil. What the law does is codifies it. It makes it official. It spells it out. Uh, and all he's saying is, if a, just because a man does not have a creed that includes the words, thou shalt do no murder, he still knows murder is wrong. And if he commits murder, even in the absence of a law that says don't commit murder, he is still guilty. 
That's what Paul is saying. Now, some have taken it, and I get it, uh, this, this passage. Maybe you notice you know, they'll be judged as without the law. So when, when people uh, ask the question, and it is probably the second most popular question, uh, when people start to question the philosophy or the, 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 maybe the moral underpinnings of the New Testament, you know, the first question, the, the, the oldest theological question or philosophical question is, if a God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil and suffering in the world? We've talked about that before. Uh, the second one is this. If Jesus is the only way to salvation, how can God be fair since there are those who have never heard? What about those who have never heard of the gospel? How is God justified in judging them, uh, pouring judgment out on them, condemning them to hell if they've never even heard the gospel. And this, some people think that this passage here, and I'm not opposed to this idea, is Paul's answer to that. Meaning if they don't have the law, they're going to be judged according to their conscience. That all of mankind is going to be judged by how they respond to the truth that they have. Now, I think we need to go a little bit further than that. Um, And I'm going to lay a little bit of C.S. Lewis on you here in a little bit. But uh, what he is saying, uh, what I believe he's saying is that since we have a conscience that tells us right and wrong, we ought to and are capable of using our imaginations. It doesn't take a lot of deep thought to recognize where does this ought to come from. If I sense, if I know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, where did this moral law come from? What C.S. Lewis, Lewis called the natural law. Um, I don't know if I want to go here yet. Let, let me say this first. He goes on to say that the, that the Jews, he's saying to them that this has, been, has always been their problem in their history, that it's their failure to live by the law that they are judging others by, that has caused the name of the Lord to be blasphemed. In, in chapter 2, verse 24, it says that, for the name, of the, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And this is a passage that I have always tied uh, to the verse in, the, in Peter's epistle where he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the very thing that they slander you uh, for is going to cause them to glorify God in the day of visitation. That really is uh, our behavior and our living the gospel out. Live the gospel, preach the gospel. That's what we do at Living Word Family Church, right? That's our vision. Live the gospel, preach the gospel. Because if we are living the gospel, uh, it, what we are doing is walking in a manner that is worthy of the name by which we are saved. We are not earning our salvation. And this is what Paul is nailing down here. Uh, and yet, uh, it certainly has been the poor quality of the outworking of the gospel in the believer's life that has turned people off. Now, I believe and maintain, certainly not in every case, but in many cases, that is an excuse the unbeliever uses. Uh, I, you know, I think it's such a popular thing to say that some people just hide behind it. They don't want to be confronted with the truth, so instead they'll just uh, throw stones at the at people who say they believe. And yet, it certainly uh, it can't be denied that our behavior really does have a lot to do. There's a strong connection between our behavior and evangelism. Uh, Paul goes on to stress that, that circumcision and being of Jewish lineage is of absolutely no advantage as far as salvation is concerned. All right? In fact, he begins chapter 3. Look at this uh, in verse 1. 
Romans 3.1, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? He sees this as quite an honor. But it also kind of puts those who are wearing uh, the circumcision, their Jewish heritage, with such a badge, uh, such a uh, sense of pride. You know, we are God's people. We've talked about that and talked about that. This really was uh, exactly what Moses was predicting in Deuteronomy. Don't get a big head. Don't think that God is bringing you into this land and blessing you like this because you're better than everybody else. I have a plan for you. I'm doing this for you, for the sake of the nations around you, for the sake of the nations, the Gentiles. They never got it. But Paul still says there's an advantage, but it's not because you're God's favorite. It's because you had the extreme honor of being entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God, the sayings of God. Uh, what we call the Bible and the law has been handed down and trusted to the Jews, the prophecies that introduced Jesus Christ, that, pred- that, that predicted Jesus Christ, prepared us for Jesus Christ. That's all been through the Jews. That's the advantage. But it doesn't get them saved. That's all Paul's saying. Uh, and then he addresses this ridiculous idea that since, he says that never, in the world and in uh, those of the circumcision, the Jews, that God in the past has judged unrighteousness. And that because he judges rightly, this judgment glorifies God because it shows him to be holy and right. And then some were accusing Paul of saying, well, here's what Paul's preaching. He's saying that since God is glorified when he judges sin, we should just sin more so God gets more glory. And Paul says, that's that's stupid. And I never preach that, and I'm never going to preach that. So he corrects that. And then then in verse 9 says this, what then? This is us in Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Law or no law, all sin and all are guilty. Look at verse 20 in chapter 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So here's the problem as Paul sets it forward by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Everyone, everyone has a moral compass that reflects the righteousness of our creator. Even the Gentiles know enough that they ought to seek him out. Here's, uh, here's how C.S. Lewis puts it in uh, Mere Christianity. And you're going to have to give me a second because the copy that I marked up to share with you, I left sitting on my table and I had to go pull this out of my office. But he says, uh, when he's talking about the moral law, he talks about this this uh, objection that people have when he says that uh, we have uh, an instinct that tells us to behave a certain way, right? And they say, here it is. At least I think. Yeah. Some people wrote to me saying, isn't what you call the moral law simply our herd instinct? And hasn't it been developed just like all of our other instincts? You understand what he's saying when people say there's right, there's wrong, you do this, do that. He's saying it's part of evolution. Some people are saying this is part of evolution. We, we preserve ourselves as a species by working together. 
Okay, now maybe we've, we've become so, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've uh, developed enough to where we can call it by different names, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a herd instinct that keeps us all safe. That's why, we, that's why we don't think it's right to kill one another and do all this other stuff. Uh, and he doesn't deny that this instinct exists, but then goes on to say that if you have, there, there, there are competing instincts, for instance. If you hear a man in danger crying for help, you have two instincts. One instinct is what? The instinct for self-preservation. This guy's in danger, so I don't want to be where he is. Am I going to rush into a burning building? Because he's in danger. If I go in there, I'm going to be in danger. What's the other instinct? The instinct that says, go in there and help this guy. Because if I was in there, I would want him to help me. So you've got two instincts. But on top of that, this is Lewis still. I'm borrowing from him heavily. He says, there's a third. There's an impulse that says the right thing to do is to ignore the instinct for self-preservation and go in and help the guy. So you've got an instinct for this, an instinct for that, and something else telling you which instinct you ought to follow. And his contention, which I agree 100% with, is if you've got something outside of those instincts telling you something you ought to do, that itself can't be an instinct. There's something outside of that telling you, where does this ought come from? The way Ravi Zacharias puts it is always this. If there is a right and a wrong, we have to have a moral law by which to judge or distinguish between right and wrong. If there is no, uh, if there is a moral law then that tells us this is, this is how we judge between right and wrong, there has to be a moral lawgiver. And that, by definition, is God. There is no God. There is no moral lawgiver. If there is no moral lawgiver, there is no moral law. And if there is no moral law, there is no such thing as right and wrong. And this is exactly why we have these ridiculous conversations. They are real conversations people have where they say things that sound eloquent. They sound uh, clever, maybe. But they'll say, um, there's no such thing as truth no such thing as absolute truth you know I'll, I'll share another Ravi story with you it's one of my favorites I've shared it before he said he was flying on a plane and he heard two uh, college students having this conversation he's listening to them and they're talking about this and he's just kind of gripping his uh, armrest thing he just uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna interrupt their conversation I'm not going to until he finally heard one of them say let's face it there's no such thing as truth and he said I can't take it anymore so he turns around and he goes I just I'm sorry sorry to interrupt and if you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. I'm just, I'm just going to ask you one question, then I'll leave you alone. So I just heard you say, there is no such thing as truth. Guy says, that's right. He says, I just have one question for you. Is that statement true? <laughs> and he, sa- he says, he looked at me, he says, you know, it was as if I'd kicked a marshmallow. <laughs> it's a stupid thing to say, right? Once you think about it. The other thing is... Uh, he was also sharing about being at a campus where they were talking about the idea of right and wrong and somebody arguing against the fact that, no, it's all about preferences. It's all about culture. And he said, let me ask you, he says, I'm sorry to be so graphic, but if I were to take a baby, place it on this stage and proceed to decapitate it with an ax, would you say that I was wrong? And the guy felt trapped. So here's what he said. I wouldn't like it if you did that, but I can't honestly say it would be wrong. Now, of course it's wrong, and everybody knows it's wrong, and this guy knew it was wrong. 
but he couldn't abandon his argument. So he reduces everything to preferences. And that is exactly where we are today as a society. Just because somebody prefers something that you don't prefer doesn't mean they're wrong. It might. One of us is wrong, right? I've said this before about even religion. When people talk about, and this is where we are too, this whole thing boils down to to meaninglessness when people talk about religious truth or spiritual truth. Well, what's true for me is not true for you. Big deal. Why can't we all get along? We can get along, but we can't agree about that. It is mathematically possible for us all to be wrong, but it is impossible for us to all be right when we are talking about competing truth claims. If Jesus is, as he said, the only way, the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father by him, if he was wrong, that's one thing. But if he's right, Muhammad is wrong. Buddha is wrong. Hinduism is wrong. Correct? This is what he's saying. So, Paul tells us, In this passage, that because of that, because we know we are without excuse, the Jews especially are without excuse because they have the law and they've embraced it. The Gentiles too, because they have a code, a moral code that they, that should, that is enough to cause them to seek out where does the ought come from. And if they don't, that's their fault. And in fact, we find that most people do not. They suppress it till they get into the state that Paul is describing in the second half of Romans chapter 1. But they suppress it on purpose. That's important. So the really, really bad news summed up at the end of the first half of Romans 3 is we all, in a sense, we all know the law and none of us keeps it. The law shows us what righteousness looks like And it makes it clear that none of us has attained it and none of us can attain it on the basis of our good deeds or on the basis of the works of the law. Now starts the good news. Still in chapter 3, verse 21. But, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Isn't that interesting? The the good news is right there. Righteousness? Yeah. Bad news is none of us are righteous according to the law. The good news is there is righteousness that is attainable, but it is apart from the law. And the law itself talks about this. And we know that now, right? Those of us who've been going through the Bible, we've pretty much made that clear that all the law, all the prophets were about Jesus. They all pointed toward Jesus. So... Uh, Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've heard that before, right? Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Woo! Righteousness is still what we need, what we should want, but we cannot become righteous by our efforts. It is a, it, we can't, not by the works of the law. It is a gift that we receive when we believe. 
when we believe, and this is another passage, this is another thing that is just important today. I'm going to read you two more short passages. This is all just from the intro to Lewis, uh, to mere Christianity. And he's talking about uh, when he had this reprinted, he had to make some minor changes, but he's also talking about why he wouldn't change some things. He's talking about some objections that came from the early editions. And he says, far deeper objections may be felt and have been expressed against my use of the word Christian to mean one who accepts the common doctrines of Christianity. People had a problem with that definition. People ask, who are you to lay down who is and who is not a Christian? Or may not, listen to this, may not many a man who cannot believe these doctrines be far more truly a Christian, far closer to the spirit of Christ than some who do? Now, this objection is in one sense very right, very charitable, very spiritual, very sensitive. It has every available quality except that of being useful. (laughs) We simply cannot, without disaster, use language as these objectors want us to use it. In other words, Christian means something very specific. And he goes on for the next uh, page or so talking about how people back in his day anyway, they wanted to use the word Christian simply as a substitute for the word good. Oh, he's a good Christian man. Doesn't believe in Jesus, never made a confession of faith, never was baptized, but he's a Christian man. She's a Christian woman. They're so Christ-like, I guess, right? And then he, but he ends the argument with this, with this sentence. I love this. When a man who accepts the Christian doctrine lives unworthily of it, it is much clearer to say he is a bad Christian than to say he is not a Christian. Get that? That makes sense. I find myself often meeting good people who are not believers. And rather than say, well, that's what a true Christian is, I say, What a great person. I wish they believed in Christ. I want that for them. But I also have met people who I'm convinced are believers, who they've experienced the new birth. And I find myself, I wish they would live more in accordance with the doctrines of Christianity. There's, 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 There's no contradiction there. I'm going to share one more deep spiritual illustration for you that I may have shared before. Anybody remember a television show called The Waltons? It was a harmonica, right, or something like that. Wholesome TV show. We loved this show. I haven't seen it in years, many, many years. But there was, uh, and I looked for it. I even found it's season five, episode four, but it was too cheap to spend the $2 to download it and watch it. I just remember, watch it. I remember this scene where uh, it, what it was, it's, the episode was called Baptism. And it's about a revivalist, a well-known revivalist who comes to Walton Mountain and preaches this revival. And uh, uh, what's her name? Liv, right? She's the wife. Uh, she, Michael Learned's character gets baptized. She has this deep, strong conversion experience. And I, I remember when I watched this thinking, wow, this is really... You know, even for the day, this was pretty boldly Christian. And uh, she's so joyous 
at this transformation that has taken place and that her soul is now eternally secure, that she starts encouraging the children to come to the revivalist. And one by one, the kids go and they get saved. And some of them, I can't remember any of their names. Well, I can, you know, Mary Ellen and uh, whoever. Cheryl could name them all probably and their ages and their middle names and everything else. But that and the Osmonds, right, Cheryl? Where are you at? You know them too? All right. Anyway, they, 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 these kids go and they get saved. And, and one of them, he goes, he gets baptized, but it's, he's more or less guilted into it. It's not like he has this deep, deep desire. And so finally, it gets down to the dad. And uh, he just, and he's like, he's not saying, ah, oh, this is all garbage. Stay home and work. He's letting him go. He's like, but it's like, don't pressure me. I'm not going. But it's, his wife is so torn up and so fearful for his soul that she begs him to come. And so to appease her, he comes to the service. Does anybody remember this, this show? Uh, and so he's sitting there and he's listening and the revivalist gets going. Ah, and he's, you know, and I can't, you know, he's just preaching the straight up gospel. If, if you want to escape the fires of hell, you must accept the finished work of Jesus Christ. And everybody's woo, woo. And the camera zooms in on John, and he's like, you, sir, you need to make this decision now. Now is the accepted time. And he stands up, and you're like, ah! and he turns around, and he says, I'll not be shouted at. And he walks out, walks out. And she's just crushed. And then in the epilogue, you hear uh, grown-up John Boy or whoever it is that's doing the narration of these things, says, my father never did get baptized, but he always was the most godly man I ever knew. So I'm paraphrasing. Again, I didn't, I didn't watch it recently, but that was, that was the gist of it. Now, there's a couple things, a couple ways you could take this, depending on what their background was on Walton Mountain. Perhaps uh, John had had an ex, a conversion experience many years before. Maybe he did follow Christ he was born again and simply did not feel the pressure to be water baptized. I think it's a mistake. I think we, we should all follow the Lord in water baptism. But I don't think it is a salvific issue. I don't think it's something that's going to keep a person out of heaven. Not something I would mess with. But I think, I think it is an important... I think sometimes we downplay the importance of baptism. Point is... If he had made a confession of Christ, that's one thing. But the impression I was left with was his Christianity was defined by his goodness as a man. And this was the message. I saw, maybe I misread it, it's been many years, probably decades. I saw a man standing saying, I don't need religion to be a Christian. I don't need this stuff. I don't need a baptism. I don't need any, any of this stuff. I am a good person. That is my Christianity. And that's very, very common. And this is what Lewis was talking about. Lewis was, Lewis was talking about when he, when he said that. It doesn't matter. Why does it matter if we believe certain doctrines? Some people who don't believe in Jesus are, close, are, are better Christians. No, they're not. They might be nicer people. Uh, Brad Dawson over at Farmer City was famous for saying this. Some people are better by nature than others are by grace. Some of us just have a lot longer way to go, a lot more renewing of the mind to do when we come to Christ. Some were simply raised in better environments. But that has nothing to do with salvation. 
And this is what Paul is going to get into in this book. He does get practical. We are going to hear uh, where he writes about uh, the Christian's relationship to family, uh, to society, and to government. He's going to see what, uh, what our responsibilities are to one another in the body of Christ. But the groundwork he is laying here in the first few chapters is absolutely vital to understanding the true nature of Christianity. That we aren't Christians because of what we do, but we behave the way we do because we are Christians. Now, we didn't really do much to acknowledge uh, last year. We should have. Uh, and we did a little, just not enough, I don't think, to acknowledge the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, there was, uh, and I'll just put this little plug in here. I know I did before. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity or the inclination to check out our podcast. We haven't done one in a little while, but we did do a three-part interview with Dr. Joseph Thomas, the Christian history professor from Urbana Theological Seminary, and they were outstanding. I would encourage you to go find those where he talks about Luther and the Reformation. Actually, the first one, he just kind of gives his testimony. Uh, If you want to listen to that, fine. But the other two on the Reformation are really, really worth listening to. I am sure you'll find them interesting, even if you think you have no interest in history or church history. Anyway, one of the biggest moments leading up to the Reformation, there's a man named Erasmus, who many say that Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched because of his work in translating the Bible, that he really had some Reformation ideas, but it was Luther's posting the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church that really kicked it off. Anyway, both Erasmus and Luther had worked on translations of the Greek New Testament into German. And this wasn't done. This was, uh, it doesn't, we think, big deal. We've got hundreds of English translations. Back then, the Bible was Latin. The only acceptable translation from the Greek and the Hebrew was called the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. This was the language of the people 1,400 years uh, before the Reformation, when Jerome was the main guy who translated this. And it was a good translation, And it was a, but to be a monk, to be a priest, uh, to be in... Uh, part of the service of the church, you had to learn Latin and study it in Latin. Well, Luther decided, and keep in mind, this is at the time of Gutenberg, so now people could actually afford to own printed material, including the Bible. He thought everybody should have a copy of the Bible in their own language. So he goes to work on the translation and comes across the word metanoia. All right? Metanoia, which Jerome had translated... Let's look at this. Let's go back here to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, sorry, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man? that you who, uh, who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you did, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to metanoia? Jerome translated that, do penance. That the goodness of God leads you to do penance. Now, you know, if you know anything about the history of the church, you know where that led to indulgences and all these other uh, twistings of the truth of God, all these uh, abuses of the church. And Luther and Erasmus rightly retranslated that word to repentance. 
And we talked a little bit about that on Wednesday. There's a, there's a lot wrapped up in that word. Uh, but at the heart of that word is simply this. It's a change of mind. It has to do with how we view sin, whether or not we even recognize it as sin. It has to do with the willingness to be changed. And do you see now how this is tied into the second half of Romans chapter 1? When he's talking about all the evil in the world, he's not just talking about how desperately sinful the world is. He's talking about how much they insist that there is nothing wrong with the evil that they are doing. They are not just doing things. Man, we all, even Christians, do things and we feel bad about them. They're doing things saying, don't you tell me this is evil. Don't you tell him that's evil. Let's just celebrate with them. This is great. The language has even changed. There's no such thing as remorse for the second half of uh, Romans chapter 1. And so repentance starts with being confronted with something and saying, this, according to the word of God, is wrong. I, right now, don't feel like it's wrong. Now, and and now we're at the the, the point of decision. Am I going to then reject the Bible? Anything that's going to accuse me and condemn me, I'm just, I don't want anything to do with it. Or am I going to at least say, Lord, I confess to you this doesn't feel wrong to me. If it is, will you arrest my conscience? I am willing to be changed. Romans 2 says the fact that, they're, that they are even alive, this passage we just read, these first four, voice, uh, first four verses, the fact that they are even alive, not destroyed yet in judgment, is evidence of God's patience and his kindness. Do not mistake God's patience for his approval. Do not mistake God's long-suffering for his approval or endorsement. He is giving you space and time to repent. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Praise and worship team coming up here. What Paul is talking about, his central thesis is salvation by faith, that it is God's grace, the finished work of Christ that saves us, that we can add nothing to that, and that we receive it only by faith, not by acts of penance, not by acts of service, certainly not by keeping the law, but that only by faith do we receive this salvation. And where he's going to go next with this uh, faith is he's going to talk about Abraham in chapter 4. And as he talks about Abraham and the example of faith that he sets, I, I promise you, you're going to learn some things that will charge you up and motivate you and liberate you to believe God for great things. Because even though at the heart of Paul's message is salvation by faith, he opens the door, he kicks the door wide open that lets a lot of light in about what faith is in general. Faith for anything. Faith for salvation. Faith to believe God's promises. And once you grasp this, once you look at the promise that God made Abraham, how Abraham responded with belief and how much that meant to God, it shows you exactly 
It is a huge, important key to getting anything from God that he has promised. So suddenly it's not a matter of, oh, the silly arguments that people, oh, you're just manipulating God. Oh, what you believe is you're ordering God around. No, 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 no. It always settles down to this. Really, if we understand each other, all we really have to discuss or argue about, if you want, is what has God promised? It's not what I can get God to do. If we can simply agree that God did promise certain things, did he or did he not promise to save everyone who would call upon the name of Jesus in faith? Yes, he did. Has God, stand up with me, has God left open to himself the option of saying no to somebody who comes to him in faith for salvation? So he's God, he can do whatever he wants. He has bound himself to his word. And his word says that if you call out to Jesus in faith, you'll be saved. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. We'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org.